They're sending in the clowns. Let's start the show. We are now the defenders of the stronghold of democracy and of equal opportunity. Well, if you weren't sure what Jim Jordan was doing in Bedminster, you know now. I'm Chris Hahn. This is the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. Kevin McCarthy has named his five white men to the January 6th commission. Among them is head clown Jim Jordan. But I'm sure the others will be competing for equal clownship. This guy Jim Banks, who I never heard of, also on the committee issued some ridiculous statement. You know, their, their, their statements all revolve around the fact that it's an unbalanced committee and blah, blah, blah. Wah. You had an opportunity for a non-political January 6th commission similar to the one that studied the aftermath of 9-11, but you passed on that because the former guy didn't want you to do that. What the former guy wants is a circus. So Kevin McCarthy is doing exactly what the former guy wants. He is sending in the clowns for something that is super, super serious. It's a lot of nonsense, as always, with everything else they do in the Republican House conference. Kevin McCarthy sends Jim Jordan, who just last week, there was an excerpt from a book release that showed Liz Cheney smacking away the hand of Jim Jordan on January 6th as he was trying to help her get out of the house like she needed his help. He's going to be chivalrous. And she says to him, F you, you did this. Yeah, that Jim Jordan. He's going to be sitting right next to Liz Cheney on that committee. Let's see how that goes. That guy needs to be put in his place. Now, Nancy Pelosi has the authority to veto any and all of these choices. I suggest that she does. Now, the question is, do they put new people on or do they just say, we're not going to send anybody? I think they'll say they won't send anybody. I don't think they'll replace people who are vetoed. I think they'll try to make it a martyr. Like anybody's going to care, right? They're going to make whoever is taken off that committee a martyr, whether it's Jim Jordan or this Jim Banks guy, whatever white guy they take off the committee. And and of course it was going to be old white guys, right? It was old white guys. One of them's a freshman member, but all old white guys, whatever one they take off that committee will be, you know, the cause celeb in right-wing media for a week. It's nonsense. By the way, I've got an excellent, Excellent, excellent guest today, um, former Congressman John Hall, who is also the former founding, well, a founding member of the band Orleans. Uh, they've had big hits like Still the One, Dance With Me. What an interesting interview. Not all politics, but there's some politics. Obviously, he was a he was an activist his whole life. You know, I mean, a lot of people know he was in Congress, but people don't know a lot about John Hall. Uh, He's got a new album out now called Reclaiming My Time, which anybody who's watched a congressional hearing understands where that comes from. And uh, I really, really enjoyed talking to him um, last week on the radio show. He is an interesting guy. I haven't had any guests just say to me, yeah, so Janis Joplin was at my apartment and she was saying that my songs, I, I, that's never happened to me. And I've had rock stars on this show before. I've had celebrities on this show before. You know that. 
Um, but never a member of Congress who is also a, you know, 70s era rock star telling me stories about the New York music scene in the early 1970s with, you know, people like Janis Joplin hanging around, Jimi Hendrix, you know, blew my mind. Great interview. Stick around for that. It's coming up uh, in a few minutes. I just want to rant a little bit about this Jim Jordan guy and about this whole, you know, brouhaha that the right has stirred up about President Biden suggesting that Facebook needs to do more and other social media platforms need to do more to rid their platforms of this anti-vaccination, sorry, anti-vaccination nonsense that's going on. There's nothing based in fact being said on Facebook. And I equate this, and I've equated this on television and on Twitter and in other mediums to crying fire yelling fire in a crowded theater. You are literally risking people's lives. People are getting information from these social media platforms. And they are now, they're trusting it more than they trust the New York Times or Newsday or any of these major publications, CNN. They trust it more than their doctor in some cases because they're saying, well, your doctor is taking money from the pharmaceutical company. Well, we're giving these shots out for free to everybody. So I don't know how your doctor's getting paid here. And by the way, you could have gotten it at a mass vaccination site run by the state or run by your local government or your church or wherever. It, you know, these ridiculous sites, and by the way, it's really like 14 accounts on Facebook that are responsible for most, if not all, of the misinformation being put out to the public. The problem is, is that, you know, your cousin sees it, retweets it, and then all your other cousins think this is your cousin writing this. It's not really what's happening here. It's some somebody with bad intentions, somebody or some group or some foreign power even, with bad intentions trying to mislead Americans, and they're doing a pretty damn good job of it. They are using our right to freedom of speech against us. And let me explain something to you. Freedom of speech is not absolute. If your speech is intended to cause physical harm to people, that is not protected speech. That's the fire yelling fire in a crowded theater when no fire exists. What these anti-vaxxers, this misinformation sites being put out there about the vaccine, saying that you're going to have metals stick to you, saying that Bill Gates wants to implant a chip into you, saying that it's untested in 10 years from now, God knows what will happen to you. Those people are yelling fire in a crowded theater. And if you look around this country, we have a tale of two countries. We have some people in this country who are vaccinated. Most people are vaccinated. About a third of the people in this country are saying They will never get vaccinated. Most of them, registered Republicans, of course. The former guy needs to come out there and wholeheartedly, without reservation, tell people to get vaccinated. The statement he put out over the weekend was, well, I understand they don't trust Joe Biden. (laughs) Thanks, 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 Donnie. Thanks. Stay home. Stay in your cave. Stay at Bedminster and let Kevin McCarthy come and bend his knee to you. I believe that this is not protected speech. And I believe it's going to get challenged. 
and I think the Supreme Court's going to uphold that it's not protected speech, especially if it is shown and proven to be the cause of multiple people not getting vaccinated in this country, multiple, multiple thousands of people, millions even, not getting vaccinated in this country. Shouldn't be protected. It's fire in a crowded theater. And I'm sorry, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, even with the First Amendment. You're not allowed to use your speech to harm people. And what is being done right now is being done intentionally by a small group of people. And a lot of other people then are amplifying what they say through reposts and what have you. But it's being done intentionally. It's being done to create chaos. There is bad intentions at work here that need to be stopped. And if Facebook doesn't stop it itself, if Twitter doesn't stop it itself, I think the government is fully within their right to go in there and stop it. Now, you know, call me what you want. And I know my libertarian friends out there will probably call me, you know, uh, an overreacher here. But I'm sorry, if you're trying to hurt somebody, and that's what's going on here, you are trying to hurt somebody. You're not protected. It's not political speech. It's not like saying, you know, it's one thing to say you don't trust the government in giving this to you. It's another thing to say that this is, uh, you know, a complete fraud and that it's going to kill you and it's going to hurt you. One thing to, you know, you want to have your reservations. You're allowed to have them. But you are not allowed to intentionally mislead people into thinking that the information out there about this virus is false, about this vaccine is false. You're not allowed to put out bad information like that. That's leading people not to get vaccinated. And again, it's not like this is people, just regular people having a conversation. That is one kind of speech. And I don't think the government has the ability to stop regular people from having regular conversations about their thoughts on the virus. But when you have a very small group of people who are intentionally misleading the public on this virus for dubious purposes... Not even dubious purposes. Let's let's not call it dubious. Let's call it uh, evil purposes, frankly. Purposes that are not within the interest of the United States of America. The government, I believe, is in within its right to step in. Now, they're not stepping in. That's not what's happening. But Facebook needs to step in because I think, quite frankly, Facebook could be held liable ultimately for what's going on here. There are people out there who are dying. There are, you know, the virus is spreading among the unvaccinated and the unvaccinated are dying in hospitals. 99% of people in hospitals right now with COVID-19 systems, symptoms are unvaccinated people. Almost 100% in some places. And if you look at now, every state in the union has had, uh, you know, cases of COVID-19 go up over the last, you know, couple of weeks since this country has really opened up. But the states where there are fewer people vaccinated are seeing their hospitalization rates go through the roof. They're starting to look like they did about a year and a half ago when this was starting to kick into gear in other states. We've got to get people vaccinated. Now, look, I've said this before. I'll say this again. I think people should be given the truth about the vaccine. They, you know, lies about the vaccine should be, you know, this should be taken down. And once everybody has the truth and has the information that they need to make their own decisions as adults, I don't really care what they do. You don't want to get vaccinated. That's up to you. I, I, I pray that you don't get sick and die, but you're going to get sick. Not all of you, but 25% of you are going to get sick. 
And of that 25%, some of you might die. I don't want that to happen to you, but that's your call at this point. I am worried about children under the age of 12 and children under the age of 18 who are not getting vaccinated because their parents are idiots. I am worried about children under the age of 12, but I do believe that, you know, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see that vaccination open up for them too. But as for adults, you know, that's up to you. The problem is you might be spreading it to a kid. Really, you know, all of these conservatives out there pushing back on vaccination because they just want Biden to fail, right? They don't care. They don't care how many people die. They don't care how many people get sick. They just want Biden to fail. It is sad to see. And I don't understand how anybody who's a Christian in this country, seeing what's going on here, can, un- can, can, can still go along with it. How are you not trying to protect your fellow man? How are you not doing what you can to help other people survive this crisis? It's not Christian. Not the Christianity I was brought up with anyway. It's something completely different. You know, we, we, we learned about this Joel Olstein over the weekend having a Ferrari and all these other How did you not know that? He had a mega church, right? The guy had tons of money. It's a big scam, America. The prosperity gospel is BS. I don't know about you. I remember what Jesus said about uh, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the gates of heaven. Think about that when uh, Joel Olstein's driving around in his freaking Ferrari. <laughs> paying no taxes too, by the way. But that's great, right? A guy who has a Ferrari pays no taxes, none. I mean, you know, at least Trump paid $750 in taxes. It's ridiculous. All right, stick around. Look, if you listen to one interview I do all year, listen to the interview with John Hall. This is great. Blew me away. I didn't expect it to be so good. Fantastic. Uh, coming up right after this, and then I'll be back to wrap up the show. So stay where you are. You're listening to the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. So joining me now, I, I've I've had multiple members of Congress on this show, uh, and I've had one rock star on this show, Brian DeVoe from Nine Days, a good friend of mine. But I've never had a rock star congressman on the show. But that's going to change tonight. Congressman John Hall, how are you doing? Welcome to the Chris Hahn Show. Well, thank you, Chris. Uh, I'm doing just fine, thanks. Well, I truly... Ap- glad to be with you. I truly appreciate you coming on. Uh, you have... Such an interesting life story. One of the one of the one of the great winding paths to take you to different places, uh, but always with like a string of activism. I felt weaved through it based on stuff I've read about you over the years. Uh, and I want to just maybe start where it started for you. You you became a musician, I guess, in the early seventies. Uh, and, and, and then you, you know, I'd really like to go through that process and how that happened and, and, and how you wound your way into politics. So why don't we start about, you know, your early career in music? Okay. Well, I actually became a musician when I was, uh, four and four and a half, I started playing piano and my parents heard me playing the Marine Sim with both hands and decided to send me for lessons. And I took 11 years of classical piano lessons and then six years of French horn, including playing in the high school junior high school and high school bands and taught myself to play guitar and drums and bass and, uh, and wound up, uh, I was going to college to follow my dad's footsteps, um, as a physics major, um, and wound up staying up all night playing in every musical group I could get into a cappella group and a rock band and a 
and a bluegrass band and a football pep band and all kinds of stuff. And uh, <clears throat> so uh, that was really how I kind of made the transition. I, I guess I was probably 18 uh, when I started playing uh, occasional gigs for money, which may be a professional, although I had played organ in church when I was 12. So. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> and by the way, playing French horn, you know, you, you mentioned the French horn. I always say that's the ticket to a college scholarship because there's so few people who can play the French horn well. It's one of the hardest instruments to play. And that's like your fifth instrument that you're playing, which is kind uh, of... Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't play it well anymore, but um, you really have to keep it up to keep your lip uh, in shape. But I, um, I learned from my father's mother in Providence, Rhode Island, as she lived there. My dad went to Brown. His father was dean of engineering at Brown. And... Um, and he was a PhD in electrical engineering and physics. Uh, but in the top floor of her house, she had a record player with uh, Chet Atkins record and a, a Weaver's record with Pete Seeger on it. And I learned uh, my my entree into folk music was listening to Pete Seeger and the Weavers doing This Land is Your Land and Little Boxes and all those wonderful songs they did. And I also learned to play the first song I ever learned on electric guitar. I learned from a Chet Atkins record, his version of Glowworm. And so I I just got, you know, more and more drawn into music and into guitar. Uh, I still play a little piano, but I've moved to mainly guitar as my main instrument. And that's what brought me through many twists and turns to Orleans and into writing songs like Dance With Me or Still The One or Power or, you know, various other songs that have, including... My new record, uh, you mentioned, Reclaiming My Time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. it you, you've written some of, you know, I mean, Still the One is played probably, you know, a hundred times a day on major radio stations across this country. And it's played in people's car and it's played in commercials. It's like, it, it's a, a classic song. One of the, one of the, one of the great hits of the 1970s. Um, how did you come to form this band Orleans? Now, uh, you know, I, I might be a little sketchy on the details of, of your early career. I feel like you were in like five bands in New York City in the 70s <laughs> doing different things. And then you decided, I'm going to start my own band. And, and you you come up with this band, Orleans. Right. It was a little bit more secu- circuitous than that and took a little, much, little bit longer. I was in a band called Kangaroo uh, in Greenwich Village uh, playing at the Cafe Wah when uh, we were alternating shows with the Castiles, which was Bruce Spring- Springsteen's band from New Jersey, and it was an underage club with you know ice cream and potato chips and no alcohol. Right. And uh, but around the corner, the Flying Machine was playing at the uh, uh, at the Night Owl Cafe with James uh, with uh, John Sebastian, you know, leading and writing songs for that band. And when they left to hit the big time and go out on a bus tour, uh, the next band in there was James Taylor and the and The Flying Machine, and uh, I'm sorry, The Love and Spoonful with John Sebastian was the first band, and then James Taylor with The Flying Machine, and around the corner, Jimmy James and the Blue Flames, which was Jimi Hendrix, was playing, backing up John Hammond. What a, what a time to be in New York City, it huh? It's an I incredible mean, time to yeah. be there. And uh, But I met, uh, at that time, a journalist who wrote for the Village Voice uh, named Johanna Shear, and we uh, fell in love, we got married, and um, and she wrote a story on an, did an interview with Janice Joplin, and Janice and she became friends. And uh, Janice showed up at her apartment on the Lower East Side uh, 
uh, we sang Christmas carols together, huh. blues shuffle, shuffle blues versions of Christmas carols. And uh, I played her a couple songs that I had written, and she said, you know, the music's good, but I, lo- I don't really care for the lyrics. They sound like a young guy wrote them. And I said, well, that was me. So um, she turned to Joanna and said, why don't you and John write me a song? And so we did. We wrote a song called Half Moon. Mm. Uh, Janice recorded was on her Pearl album. It was B side of me and Bobby McGee. It was recorded by Chuck Khan and the Fifth Dimension and yeah. James Brown and various other people. And that kind of got us a, a start as songwriters. I had before that had done music to a Broadway show and an off Broadway show and, and uh, played a lot of recording sessions and done club engagements and all that. But but songwriting is what really took us, you know, to another level. Um, Introduced to a whole bunch to introduced us to a whole bunch more people, and I also worked as a sideman with Taj Mahal and Seals and Crafts and John Simon and uh, Bonnie Raitt and you know various other people in the studio or on the road and um, and sort of you know coming out of that whole thing. Well, I was playing with Taj Mahal on a, on a tour across the country, right? Both film Fillmore East and Fillmore West, and. That kind of dates me already, and uh, and recording a live record called "The Real Thing" at both the Fillmore East and Fillmore West, and um, so I wound up, uh, you know, doing the sideman thing, and then deciding that written enough songs that other people wanted to record, Millie Jackson or the Times or uh, you know different bands wanted to record, so that I decided to try to start a band of my own that did our songs. That's awesome. Did original songs. How, how did you, and that became Orleans. How did you come up with the name Orleans? You guys were in New York. You weren't in France. You weren't in Louisiana. <laughs> I mean, where's, where's it come or from? Cut. No, uh, we were playing in the beginning before we had enough of our own songs to fill up a whole night. We would play covers of R&B songs or, you know, uh, New Orleans influenced music by uh, the Meters or Al Toussaint or, or, uh, the Neville brothers. And also we were playing reggae and, you know, uh, different, uh, strains of R and B. And so one night we were getting ready to do a show and it had to have a name huh. that weekend. And, uh, our drummer said, how about Orleans? And we all went, okay. And we had a good show that night. And, that and that was it. The promoter wanted to have us back, but he had to use the same name or no, we, nobody would know <laughs> who was coming. So, and so, so the, and so the drummer did have influence in the band, which is fantastic. <laughs> My wife won't let yeah. me take up drumming. I want to take up drumming. She's like, you're not going to do it. That's not going to happen oh, in our house. Good therapy. <laughs> it's, that's what I keep saying. I was like, I'll get my, my frustrations out. You've had an amazing career. And, and to think about like just the first part of your career, the music career, that would have been enough for most people. But you come back, you, you start a family in the Hudson Valley, uh, and you get involved uh, in local politics. Uh, what must that have been like for you? Well, uh, it was natural. It was an outgrowth of my, of my upbringing and, you know, consciousness about what's going on around me in this country and, you know, and home, my hometown and the country and the world. And you know, I guess, you know, it might be worth mentioning that I was brought up in a very devout uh, Catholic family. My little brother was a priest, and my mom was the first uh, woman in the United States to graduate from a Jesuit seminary. Wow. And I uh, and I just always believed in uh, the idea that we should be good stewards of the earth, uh, among other things. You know, you know, the morality that I was taught includes that. And if you think about um, uh, 
future generations, uh, which I would agree uh, should have a right to life, it's, it's important that they not have an environment that that is unlivable. Right, that's trying to and kill them, I frankly. Saw quite a ways back, yeah. yeah. I saw quite a ways back that that was where we were headed. And, and that's what got me involved with, you know, stopping things like 100 junk cars being crushed on my ne- next-door neighbor's lawn one Sunday morning in Saugerties, New York, or uh, a nuclear plant being built uh, six miles north of where I lived to where, with my wife and my young uh, daughter at the same time. We, uh, you know, north just north of Woodstock, New York, and yep. Saugerties. And, uh, and, you know, I started me going to hearings and listening to what the NRC commissioners or the state uh, power authority commissioners were thinking and saying and got me reading things and testifying about my opinion and listening to what my neighbors were saying. And um, so I wound up putting together some fundraisers for these different causes and it culminated, I guess, in my involvement in the No Nukes concerts in 1979, which was uh, a group uh, musicians united for safe energy that I founded along with uh, 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 Jackson Brown, Bonnie Raitt, and Graham Nash. And we were involved with, of course, many other musicians who performed at those five concerts at Madison Square Garden and, you know, yep. raised money for a movie and a uh, you know record and so on on Warner Brothers. And and I was, along with Bonnie, uh, the only one of the only two musicians to actually sit on the foundation board and give away the grants and read hundreds of grant applications uh, to, to give away the money we raised from those events. So... Uh, you can learn a lot in a short time, and and that's part of what I did. That's awesome. So you, you wind up running for, uh, let me make sure I get this right, Ulster County Legislature. In, in, right. In, that in, was back when I was I was trying to stop the uh, Ulster County Legislature from citing a, uh, or government, from citing a giant incinerator and, uh, and a landfill, a giant dump, would accept 200,000 tons of garbage a year for 20 years on our last undeveloped farm in the town of Saugerties and uh, the Winston Farm Alliance. I was one of the founders of that. And right. Just a citizens activist group, you know, and and we were able to stop that from happening. And along the way, people thought maybe it would be good if I ran against the gentleman who was representing our town in the county legislature before that, who had voted for, for this monstrosity in that site. And, um, and had been rewarded with the same guy voting for him again, you know, for another uh, half of another, I'm sorry, $5 million to go to the same firm that he had uh, previously uh, voted for, you know, after they voted for this sighting in our town. So anyway, I just, I said, no, I said, I got a family. I said, I got a, yeah. You also are an international rock star. Let's be clear. They're asking you to run for county legislature, which, look, I get running for Congress, right? But, it, yeah. I, you know, you're, they're asking you to run for the county legislature. You are an international superstar, and you do it. I, well, I did it because I said find somebody else, and they came back a couple months later and said, we can't find anybody, and he'll run unopposed if you don't run. Wow. And I said, I said well, in that case, put me down. It's like yeah. uh, it's like when Uncle Willie comes in and tells uh, Bailey they'll sell to Potter if you don't. <laughs> you know, it's when your rocks get scored, right? And that's how most people get involved with politics: is something happens that affects them directly or their family directly. Right. A school board was the same thing. I, I only served one term in the county legislature. I didn't have designs on a career in politics, 
Um, but uh, we got, you know, some things done that were good. First recycling law in the county, uh, you know, a little bit of work on uh, switching people on methadone maintenance to uh, talk therapy, you know, drug-free uh, treatment. And and um, and I just didn't run for re-election. And then a couple of years later, my daughter was in high school, and the school had been on an austerity budget for three years, uh. her freshman, sophomore, and junior year. And I was determined that she would have at least her senior year of high school on a fully funded uh, budget and school district and smaller class sizes and uh, advanced placement languages and so on. And so I ran for the school board and uh, and won and then won re-election as president of the school board. And the interesting thing about that, I think it's the purest form of politics. Oh, yeah. Because you don't run in New York State anyway as a member of a party. No. You run as an individual and you have to you know, convince people that your ideas are sound and that you will, you know, continue and, to do the right. And it's thing. a very you small did. number of people who vote for those positions, and you, you could probably meet them all. No matter, no matter what you do, everybody's somebody's mad at you, and you don't get paid for it. I've always okay. told people in politics. You know, I, I advise a lot of people who want to run for office. I say, don't run for school board. <laughs> You're never going to win. You're never going to win people over. People are going to be mad on both sides, and eventually, if you stay there long enough, you're going to piss everybody off. Yeah. Well, and one interesting thing is uh, you have to find different alliances on different issues. Yeah. It's not like one side is going to vote together. Yeah. Uh, the other interesting thing is that I ran as a union member. I've been a member of the Musicians Union and AFTRA, uh, American Federation of Television yep. and Radio Artists, you know, for basically my whole adult life. And I, my parents were teachers and my daughter was a teacher. And, and the teachers union supported me in the first school board election and the second one they opposed me huh and i actually won with more votes the second time than i did the first time wow and uh it's a long story why that happened it, yep uh it had to do with specifics of that budget yeah and that particular superintendent of schools who i was supporting but um but you know you get you learn, have to learn how to compromise and how to make things happen and, even and, if you don't get your way all the time and i'm sure that experience came in in very handy you run for Congress in 2006, the great blue wave of 2006. You decide to run for Congress. Now, how did you come to that? You'd, you'd, you'd given up the school board. You'd given up the county legislature. You're hanging out right. in the Hudson Valley, beautiful part of the world. And you decide to throw your life into turmoil and run for Congress. Well, my first wife and co-writer, Johanna, Paul and I uh, had separated and divorced. And I actually moved uh, to Tennessee for a couple of years and lived on my sailboat and took it to Havana on a humanitarian aid mission and with a letter from the Treasury Department saying I was legal and back up, you know, up north and sold it. And, you know, I was working with Orleans and solo records and so on. And uh, moved into Dutchess County, New York, across the river to the east of the Hudson River and checked to see who my congressperson was. And it turned out to be a lady who had voted for the Iraq War and for drilling in the Arctic yep. National Wildlife Preserve and other things that I didn't approve of. And I thought, well, there's an election coming up. I think I'll just check and see who's running. And I figured I would find a Democrat I could support in the primary. And, and I had, there was the point, there were, at that point, there were four announced Democrats in the primary. And I met for lunch or coffee or something with, with each of them and talked about the issues with them and wound up thinking I might be a better candidate and possibly a better representative. And so I I did 
throw my hat in the ring and had an interesting talk with Rahm Emanuel, who was head of the uh, DCCC at the time, uh, about whether I should support the candidate they had already chosen and, uh, you know, what's wrong with her. And I said, well, she didn't know that we're already building the anti-missile system in um, Alaska, even though it's failed all of its tests. Mm. And I thought that was a kind of important piece of information for a candidate for Congress to know. And, you know, and, and he just said, well, just please try not have a primary. And I said, well, happy to not have a primary if they all drop out. <laughs> and, but anyway, so I, I managed to win the primary and then I managed to win the general. And, and uh, uh, I can just say that being a candidate is a lot easier than serving yeah. in the office once you're elected. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. My, my wife is actually running right now for Congress. <laughs> but oh. I, I'll uh, talk to you about that off the air. I don't really like to talk about that on the air. Uh, but it is it is a it is a it, uh, you know, it, it's it's a a labor of love. Let's just put it that way. Um, you served for four years. Uh, Democrats had the majority during those four years. Then you lost in 2010 during that Tea Party wave, the first election with Citizens United and unlimited money uh, being spent in the dark. Uh, I, I think that 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 2008, you know, eight, uh, 2007 to 2011 Congress got a lot accomplished uh, and really brought the com- country back from, you know, where it was under uh, Bush and, of course, passed the Affordable Care Act, which I think is one of the great achievements of the last you know, 40 years in this country. It is. It is. And, of course, I voted for that. I was attacked for being the tie-breaking vote. Yeah. I'm going to take over your health care. You know? And I try to, when I go around the district and talk about things, that people would raise that question. I would say, have you seen any government agency in your doctor's office? Right. Because I have. You know, right. call me if you, find, if you see anybody. You know, but... Uh, but anyway, I, I think the most important thing I did, actually, in Congress, uh, although I thought I was the environmental candidate and the anti-war candidate, I wound up being appointed by Speaker Pelosi to chair the subcommittee on veterans' disabilities. Right. And I was the prime author of and steered through that subcommittee uh, a bill called the Veterans Claims Modernization Act of 2000, 2008, which passed unanimously every Republican and every Democrat in the Senate and the House voted yes. And um, and uh, President George W. Bush, w. Bush signed it into law and called it good government in his signing statement. And there you go. I was as surprised as anybody. Yeah. I had been trying to run against George W. Bush, uh, although I'm also nostalgic for him. Yeah, I think I think any one of us would trade the Republican Party we have today for the George W. Bush brand of Republicanism. At least right. we at least we could argue with them and have you know arguments. Uh, it, it, so and the, the, what my bill did, uh, I just if I could quickly say what it is is, is uh, at the time we had an epidemic of suicide, bankruptcy, homelessness, and divorce among our returning veterans yeah. from Iraq and Afghanistan, and the problem was with if one of them came back with a severe, disabling, undisputed injury, like a lost limb or a traumatic brain injury, they would have to get a statement for the commander or one of the uh, members of their unit to the VA saying that this had happened. And yes, so-and-so was a yep. vehicle when it was blown up into the air by an ID. And that's how he got injured. And it's hard to even track down somebody who may still be over there in the war theater or a commander who may, may be still in Afghanistan and get them to write a letter, and but especially if you've got a traumatic brain injury or if you're under the stress of having a lost leg or an arm or something. And yeah. What my bill did was say that, it said a lot of things, but the main thing was 
if you have one of these undisputed injuries, you go over with four limbs, you come back with three or two, or you come back with your bell rung and a traumatic brain injury or with PTSD, that from the day you walk in to the VA or somebody presents your papers to the VA for you, you start receiving 100% disability pay that day. There you go. Because the only way you can stop people from having these crises of homelessness and, uh, you know, kids not being able to, you know, have have food on the table or families, you know, up and getting evicted for lack of rent, et cetera, et cetera. You have to pay, pay you have to give money. It has to be said. There's, I'm sorry that it comes to a financial solution, but well, that was what was most important. And we that, got that to happen. That's all good stuff. But I got to talk about reclaiming my time or your publicist is going to kill me. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and I only have about a minute and a half left. You, you got an album out called, you have an album, a new album out called Reclaiming My Time. It's available wherever you get albums uh, online, I'm sure. And, and, and probably you've got some vinyl of this going around. Um, tell me about this. How'd you come to, to, to write this? And, uh, you know, well, the, the saying, obviously, Reclaiming My Time is a phrase used on the floor of the house when, when one is interrupted and wants to get their time back again to finish whatever they were saying. Yep. And this is, to me, it's like reclaiming the songs I might have written, the recording I might have done, um, the, the musical work overall that, you know, during my time in elected office. Uh, I would add that uh, regarding veterans, the very last song on the record, Welcome Home, was written for a Vietnam veteran friend of mine and, and touches on some of the things that, that, that we just talked about. Uh, there are songs like I Think of You, the first song, it was co-written with... Uh, Hall of Fame songwriter Sharon Vaughn, which is just a happy rock and roll song. Nice. Probably inspired by Roy Orbison more than anything else. Nice. And there are, you know, duets with Dar Williams, the song uh, Save the Monarch, or Steve Warner, who I co wrote a number one country hit with years ago, um, uh, sang a duet with on another one, another sunset. You know, escapist stuff, but there's also topical songs like uh, World on Fire, which seems timely now. And, uh, and save the mark. That's what we're playing. That's what we're playing out. John Hall, Good. this has been great. You, I, I could talk to you for five hours. Uh, you're fantastic. Check out Reclaiming My thanks. Time wherever you get your albums. Congressman John Hall, thanks for joining me. I'll be right back. Hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I enjoyed doing it. That was some of his music playing at the end there. Um, Reclaiming My Time is the name of the album. Make sure you pick it up wherever you download albums nowadays. Uh, Or I'm sure there's some vinyl of it somewhere, so check it out. Uh, Reclaiming My Time, uh, John Hall. And Orleans is coming out with a Christmas album this year, and I'm probably going to have former Congressman Hall back on uh, to talk about that because, quite frankly... Uh, awesome, awesome interview. I'd love to have him in the studio and really just go into depth about the seventies, frankly, because that is fascinating to me. And then just the fact that this guy just becomes this local activist. Could you imagine being on the school board, right? With John Hall when in the eighties, like Orleans, you know, you just went to a wedding and they, and they were playing (laughs) the first dance was dance with me. I, I, I don't. I don't know how he did it. I don't know how the people reacted around him uh, to it, but that's that's pretty awesome, uh, to say the least, and uh, I'm sure he really got a kick out of some of his interactions over the years. 
So, hey, just an update. Uh, I still haven't heard from Dave Smith. You know, look, I don't mind being criticized. It's I go on, I'm a liberal who goes on Fox News. I'm criticized all day and all night. But if you're going to say I'm afraid to come on your podcast and then I reach out to you to go on your podcast, you should freaking invite me to your podcast. Don't pretend you didn't get my email. Don't pretend you didn't see my Facebook mess, my, uh, my, uh, not my Facebook, but my uh, Twitter message to you respond, say, nah, I just was saying that that's, that's not, that's a dick move. Sorry. I don't know what to tell you. I, I don't, I don't have any real animosity towards him, but you're going to blow me off like that. I emailed him well over a week ago. I messaged him well over a week ago. I heard his podcast. I was entertained by his podcast. I didn't think it was a bad podcast, frankly. Um, what, what am I not good enough? I've seen some of the guests you've had on the podcast, including nobody most weeks. Uh, I think it would be an interesting conversation, frankly, and I'd like to have it, but you know, whatever. I'm afraid to go on your podcast is what you said. I wouldn't go on a show like his to have an in-depth, long-form conversation, which is something I do with myself every single week on this podcast. Now I get it. It's very stream of consciousness. And I just kind of go off on rants here and having a conversation with him would be very different. But you know what? I've gone on a lot of people's podcasts, people who you know, aren't heard that much and people were heard a lot. Uh, I'm happy to have a long form conversation with people who disagree with me. In fact, I want to have conversations with people who disagree with me. That's my whole thing. Getting people who disagree with me to talk. I, I, I talk about that all the time. I find that there's a lot of common ground. And I quite frankly think there's a lot of common ground between Dave Smith and I. And I think I talked about that last week. But the fact that he doesn't want to have me on his show or doesn't want to respond, or wants to act like he didn't get my email, that's disturbing. And I'm sure by now, somebody has told him that I have said, hey, you know, Chris Hahn wants you to have, wants you on his, wants to be on your podcast and have him, have you on his radio show, which I do. So happy to talk to you, Dave. I've uh, messaged with a lot of people on Facebook who are a lot more famous than you are, and they get back to me. So, you know, bigger stars, even on Fox News, some of the people who really disagree with me uh, and and also people who are big, big, big stars. And I get it. You did the Joe Rogan show once. Yay. Okay, come on. Let's have a conversation and let's talk it out. I think you and I have a lot in common. I think that might be what worries them the most. Harder to demonize me when I'm sitting right in front of you. And I'm happy to come to wherever studio you are. And I'm happy to have you out here. I told you I'll even buy dinner. If you come out here, okay? Buy you dinner. Nice dinner. Something nice. Not too not too expensive, but it won't be Applebee's or anything like that. It'll be big. Nice. You good. Fun. All right? So let's get it done. All right, America. I want to remind you now, as I always do, to seek the truth. Question everyone and everything, even me. Seek the truth. I know it's out there, and I know you'll find it if you look for it. And I'll be back here again next week to tell you the truth as I see it. I'm Chris Hahn. Thanks for listening to the Aggressive Progressive Podcast.